0: Hello and welcome to the Research Connection Podcast, the show that brings current expertise and cutting edge research and connects it with users in the community.
1: Where are you <laughs> calling from, Richard?
2: Um, well, I'm calling from Ditch Lake. Now okay. beautiful. Jackie, you know where that is? I do. But not
0: because not for any good reason. I just had a friend who was looking at property up
2: around that area. Uh It's a terrific spot.
0: Should we get started?
1: Um, My name's Michelle Lam, I'm the director of BU Cares. Cares is the Center for Aboriginal
0: and Rural Education Studies. And I'm Jackie Kirk and I'm the chair of the Department of Leadership and Educational Administration and um, co-host of the podcast. And we should mention too that
1: both of us come from fairly rural prairie places. So I grew up in Fox Warren, Manitoba, which is a town of about 50 people, maybe, maybe little town. We have the coldest drink in all of Manitoba, I'm told. And I believe it after being there. So that's how that's where I grew up. And uh, so I'm really interested in the topic of rural mental health and men's mental health. And I think that it's a really interesting topic. I'm glad we're here talking about this.
0: And I grew up in Climax, Saskatchewan, on a farm outside of Climax, so um, Climax has about a, at the time that I was in high school, it had about 150 people, I think. It's shrunk a little bit. But.
1: That's, why, that's why I hesitated when I said Foxhorn had 50 people. I don't even know if they still have that many. Maybe they do, but I don't know. So, Rachel, who are you? Could you introduce yourself to us?
3: So I'm a professor at Brandon University um, in the Department of Geography and Environment. And uh, I'm a health geographer by trade, which means I'm, I'm really interested in how our environments, our communities, uh, social and physical influence our health. i hold the Canada Research Chair in Rural and Remote Mental Health and I'm the founding director of the Centre for Critical Studies of Rural Mental Health. But before all of that, uh, like you guys, I grew up in a a rural place. My my dad uh, is still farming, though at a smaller scale than when I was a kid. Um, So I grew up on a farm, uh, a beef feedlot at the time, uh, now my dad switched to a cow and calf operation because he he has a lot of joy that comes from seeing that. And I, I guess for me, in terms of understanding mental health, there are various people uh, in my life uh, who, who I've been close to uh, who have different experiences of of mental illness and mental health uh, that sort of drives my, my interest in this topic particularly?
2: Um, well, first and foremost, I am a rural person now living a ditch like. but I've been a mental health advocate for probably four or five years. However, I've been dealing with working all my life with a mental illness. It's quite possible that I could have been diagnosed in my teens, but I actually wasn't I actually didn't start getting support until I was in my 40s. So, and then from that period of time, it took me probably a decade and a half to be able to really kind of coordinate my life so that I feel um, very, very mentally healthy, if you want to put it that way, and very comfortable talking now about my previous experience and how I look at mental health and how I actually look at society looking at mental health. I was quite fortunate that I got a chance to meet Rachel when she was doing a study on men's uh, rural health. And then from there, we've uh, maintained a really nice relationship, and I'm part of the consumer advocate for the Center for Critical Studies of Rural Mental Health.
1: So could we talk a little bit about how men's mental health is unique?
2: Well, I, I think what I'd like to do is actually, do, I'd like to do a little bit of definitions of relationship to what mental health and mental health illnesses. And I say that because, of course, during the period, I know we'll talk about this a little bit later about COVID-19, but it seems to me that we're really hearing a lot the past few years about mental health and, and, you know, mental health is health and all these different things. Well, someone who has, um, I think, a good way to look at it is uh, that everyone, everyone can have good mental health or they can have poor mental health. And it depends really situationally on their ability to be able to have a balanced life and, and be able to, to cope with things, the normal stressors that happen in life. And I, th- I think that that's probably a good way to put it, that it used to be that mental mental health was considered the absence of a mental illness. So they don't do that anymore. So now what they really understand is the people with good m- mental health, they can be sad, they can be angry, they 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 can have all the emotions that really they're supposed to have, and that's part of living the life as a human being it's not an either or situation where you have to be feeling good you don't have to be feeling good all the time the good part is that you're able to balance and be able to understand the things that you can control and the things that you can't control and and for me that's really been one of the real keys is that i can i can understand the stresses of life. And I can work within those parameters and feel comfortable. So my life isn't being uh, disadvantaged in any way by how my brain is working.
3: I, I think that's really important groundwork <laughs> for, for Richard. Um, and I, I want to thank him for really articulately uh, communicating something that I find quite difficult to communicate, which is how do we understand mental health to begin with? And I think part of why I asked Richard uh, to to be the guest in this podcast is because basically anything that I say in this podcast is based on the experiences of men who are willing to share their stories like Richard. And so we call that lived experience. And we increasingly recognize that if we're going to define mental health, if we're going to understand men's particular experiences of mental health, we actually need to talk to people who have lived experience. And while Richard might not like being called an expert, I think it's important that we recognize that he is, as he's told me, an expert in his own mental health. And so I feel you know, somewhat uncomfortable in a way on this podcast with him because one, I'm a woman. Who am I to talk about men's mental health experiences? I have I have talked to a lot of men over the last uh, few years, particularly, you know, focused on on this research question uh, and the question that you posed about, you know, why men. Um, so I can speak to what the research says, and there's a few things that I I would like to to get across. But I I also uh, am curious always about, you know, how how does the research actually communicate with the person with lived experience? That's what's kind of cool about this conversation that we're having here today, is we actually get to have a conversation between the research and that lived experience. So I can say, okay, in general, men report lower levels of stress and depression. And that's, you know, people who do large population surveys uh, have, have discovered that, there's this kind of paradox that there are these lower reports of stress and depression, but men, um, and particularly rural men, have been found to be three to four times more likely uh, to complete suicide. And so suicide rates are higher among rural men in comparison to urban men and in comparison to rural women. And so that suggests that there's something about gender that, that's influencing that particular phenomenon. And so researchers have done some surveys uh, that have allowed them to look at how men endorse or internalize stigmatizing views, that they tend to be more likely to internalize these sort of negative associations uh, with poor mental health. They tend to be less likely to seek support, and they sometimes, often actually express mental health differently so they may be more likely to engage in drinking or what sometimes researchers refer to as risk-taking behaviors um, rather than maybe some of the emotions that we associate with or emotional expressions that we associate with poor mental health so i can speak to that as a researcher i'm wondering richard if there's anything you would you would add
2: to that? Sure. Um, probably a very good time to, to talk about stigma a little bit. It's, I spend a lot of time uh, reading articles and looking at social media. And one of the things that happened with me was that I, when, when I first became ill, I became very ill because I did not reach out. And I did not reach out because of the stigma, but the stigma was more of a self-stigma. It wasn't a stigma that was directed towards what I, I thought, perhaps it did a bit in general in terms of what people thought about mental illness, but it was a really a tremendous shame and guilt that I, was, I, I had done something wrong. And you become distorted when you're when you're ill your your brain is distorted and your thoughts are distorted so that you don't have the opportunity to look at it from a distance you are literally in it so severely that it's almost like you can't move and so i needed to be i was basically broken i i didn't go for help i didn't go for help i did get some help but really it wasn't until a period of time where i met i had gone to a couple of um, eap settings and met a couple people and i had absolutely no desire to talk to these individuals and then i came upon one gentleman who really we we hit it off and i finally told him my true story and when I actually told them my story, then I was, I got to see staff, uh psychiatrist, the very next day, and that was the start of, of my journey of getting better, but I, but I did not seek out help. I, I literally did the best I could during the day, and I was working at the time. But I was so ashamed of what what was happening with my brain, and again, the distortion really makes you think that you you should be better. You, you, what's wrong with this picture? You look at other people and you see them as being probably normal would be a great way to put it. would see other people, I would think of them as normal, and I would think of myself as not being normal, not being contributing to society. And I think that, so that stigma thing is a really big deal. And I certainly fit the, the men's piece of self-stigma where I would not, and I did not reach out to anyone.
1: Rachel, in the research, the experiences that Richard is describing, is that pretty common for men? Yeah, I mean there's a lot to
3: Richard's experience. It's hard to to um certainly the experience of stigma and the challenges of navigating our our healthcare systems and social support. I think are I think we can say generally that that they are that challenging. I'm always struck when I hear Richard talk about you know, having this experience that, that really started quite early on in life and, and then being in his 40s before he actually got the, the support that he needed. I think people are positioned differently. Some people are able to get help sooner, but that, I always find that part of Richard's story really, really shocking, but not necessarily uncommon.
1: And I want to ask about the rural piece too, that is it a compounding factor that the, the men are experiencing some of this stigma and the hesitation to reach out like Richard described and the rural location I'm sure also is a big factor. So could you speak to that a little bit, how the rural experience is different than in an urban setting? Rural places are are unique in a lot of different respects. Um,
3: As a a geographer, I have studied how rural places are culturally different, um, and both geographers and sociologists, other researchers, um, sometimes characterize rural places as having a sort of culture of silence around mental health um, that then further contributes to the kind of stigma that uh, Richard talked about, but that culture is really, especially in say agricultural communities, there is often a lot of emphasis on stoicism and strength and working hard and I think what I can pick up on in, in Richard's story is this sense of, of the need to contribute and not contributing enough and really that sort of self-stigma Richard was contributing. <laughs> and many of these men are contributing. They're working really hard. They're running massive operations, for example. and And yet there's this feeling that that they're not. And so it's it's that sort of cultural piece is a really is a really big part of it. But there are other factors uh, as well in terms of resources, right? So rural places tend not to have the same kind of health resources. Uh, specifically when it comes to mental health, right? The majority of specialists are are centralized in centers. And also we might think about other kind of resources. So our our health resources aren't just our health resources in the sense of formal health resources. We also know that our health resources are support networks, our friends. Well, if the majority of your friends are moving away for work in the city, then that kind of depletes your Uh, immediately accessible social support network, or maybe there's fewer businesses or recreational facilities. And for for men in particular, uh, work is often a a strong part of their identity um, and a strong part of their ability uh, to make social support systems, right? is the the guys at work, so to speak. And so when rural businesses decline, that can have a really direct impact on on mental health. Um, So those are some of the things uh, that make rural locations unique. I know Richard has also been doing some work actually now that he's moved to a rural location and he's been trying to run some support groups. So maybe he could speak about some of that and the challenges he's
2: experienced. That's, yeah, that's true. The, the rural experience is, is very interesting and it, it can happen in the city as well, but I'm straightforward when I talk about the fact that, let's go back to stigma again. A part of stigma is is really related to what other people say in just general conversations. So they don't think about it. They don't think about the fact that maybe they're walking down the street and and they're just joking about somebody who's, who just went crazy, or they'll use different terms, or quite frankly, there'll be people who are unkind to other people, just in general. And that quite frankly, that's part of stigma is, is the fact that, that we're not, if you're not kind as a person, you're not going to be able to think, understand, and appreciate what a true mental health issue is. You're not going to. There's that whole thing of, let's just say, with depression. Well, everybody gets depressed. Get over it. You honestly, if you haven't lived it, you you don't have an idea of how profoundly frightening it can be. So I think in rural areas, I mean, I'm, I did start a peer support group. I've done peer support groups before, but one of the things that we found, among other things, was that in small towns, people are, are especially they, they, they simply it's far easier to suffer in silence than to let someone else know that you're looking for support. And so if, if you go to a church, you know if the, if the group is in a church, People are going to walk by and see those vehicles, and then they're going to have that perceived notion that there's something wrong with you. And if and if you're needing mental health supports, you're going to think that there's something wrong with you. The flip side of that is that I have found that if you get an opportunity to be able to run peer support groups, and there are peer support groups that run in Brandon, uh, there's a tremendous Upside to be sitting in a room with people and not being judged.
1: And in light of everything that's happening in in the world because of COVID-19, is COVID-19 having an impact? And do you see that happening on mental health and in in rural areas in particular?
2: I I think it's a little bit too new for us to know, but I think, um, and I've had an opportunity to talk to Rachel about this, I believe that people who have been dealing with mental health issues and have been dealing with mental illness are far more prepared than uh, other individuals in relationship to COVID-19. I certainly, and i just use myself as an example, I, my balance, and you can imagine taking the years it did for me to actually get well, that took a tremendous amount of patience. That took a tremendous amount of, actually a lot of insecurity um, because of the, again, the resources didn't naturally come. So when this first started, I'm very, of course, I'm very aware and I'll social distance, but I do not get caught up into the anxiety of it. And I didn't at all. It just simply, okay, what is it that I can do? What can I control? Um, I can control my thoughts and, and on a day-to-day basis understand that it is going to change, that um, it, it simply is something that is a kind of a moving target and I need to be prepared to move with that. And that would be another thing that I would relate with uh, mental health and uh, mental illness There are many, many times that you have so many challenges, and that could be with different medications, that could be seeing different people, or, or all sorts of things. You really learn how to roll with the changes that'll come up. But I do hope that all the people who are experiencing the anxieties and the difficulties now, I do hope that there may be a sense of their understanding mental health concerns and mental illness a little bit better, that there'll be a more empathy, because they'll they'll realize that in their own lives that they can't control what's going on.
1: I think that's a great point, and I really love that you're seeing the things that you went through and are still going through as a source of strength or a place that other people can, can learn and draw from.
3: I, I guess I would add, to your uh, your observation that certainly, you know, resilience doesn't come without adversity. And so people like Richard, who have the experience that he has had, have over time developed resilience, not resilience as an individual trait, but in terms of the resources that they have, strategies that they've developed, support networks that they've developed, and, and so on. And so I, I, when I first started talking with Richard, I reached out to him about COVID-19 after we'd finished a report on our, our rural men's mental health study. And we were really kind of worried about, you know, these men that we talked to and, you know, what, we don't really know how people are experiencing COVID-19. We have some early studies that are poll, you know, we have polls and we have some some surveys that say, okay, it looks like people are experiencing greater levels of anxiety, trauma, depression, and uh, some of these have targeted, say, healthcare workers, for example, uh, and that's really important. But I do have concerns about the continuing care needs of people who are living with a mental illness in rural areas. Uh, I hope that richard is is right that that they're drawing on some of the strategies that that they've developed. I also really hope that his message about what our broader community response should be in terms of learning to be more empathetic, learning to be more flexible, accepting uh, change is is going to have an impact on the culture around mental health right that You know we keep hearing this is the new normal this is the new normal COVID-19. I don't think COVID-19 is the new normal but I really hope it's an opportunity to challenge the way that we have responded in the past and and to respond differently in the future and I I just really hope that we we take up uh, Richard's challenge.
1: Jackie I see big nods coming from your direction
0: well, I just, I really like um, the way that you described it, Richard. I That you've given a very nice description that helps me to really frame it and to understand it um, more thoroughly. I also really like that um, you've framed it in a way that shows the skill of, you know, that it's something that people can work through and work for and develop skills for coping, which you know all of us need. And I like the idea of balance because that's what we don't do well. And I think in terms of COVID-19, that's one of the things we're going to have to learn to do better.
1: I have one last question for Richard and Rachel, you're welcome to chime in too. Um, you mentioned in, in sharing your story and your introduction that it took quite a few years uh, but eventually you found one person that felt safe enough for you to tell your true story, I think is how you said it. So my question is, how? what characteristics did that person have that made them feel so safe for you? And how can we be like that person as we're trying to advocate or we're trying to be safe for the people in our lives?
2: Um, that's, an, that's an excellent question. I'm, I'm, I'm going to get on my soapbox with just a little bit of a rant right now. Because of COVID-19, it's very important there is the social distancing, and and now we're using technology to try and help and support people. Uh, I am very afraid that that is going to be considered more of a way, an easier way how to deal with it, rather than going back to have the face-to-face contact with people. Um, because it was really the persona of that person, the, the face-to-face. I've, I've probably met four people in my lifetime who I trusted. And to get better, you can't simply, I, I know there's a lot of times, you hear the, the end stigma or stop stigma or all this stuff. They're, they're, they're simply simply words, and, but they can translate. And how they translate is by providing those resources that are the face-to-face, where people can talk and not feel judged and realize that somebody cares and, and you don't have to take it on yourself. And so in my lifetime, I've had about four people, um, including one time where I, I, had, I was in crisis and I was fortunate to be able to chat with someone and uh, she was a clinician and she was extremely good at her job and I I can't imagine not having seen her because her ability to understand and not judge, not even really to empathize, but just to really listen was, was Absolutely uh, wonderful. So technology is fine, but but uh, no, you don't. You're not going to. <laughs> uh, people who who need supports, those face-to-face supports are are really really important. I've talked to Rachel about this before. I have no idea when it was that I actually found my voice. Um, But once I found my voice, I realized it's not only is it okay, but by sharing, um, again, that whole community thing that Rachel talks about, we really need we really need to 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 get better and and have a better understanding so it can so so we can have more relaxed conversations because I think for men, um, they're not going to they're not going to simply talk unless they can trust the individual and to trust the individual that person has to have knowledge they have to have insight into an illness and they have to have uh, a compassion and empathy so
1: well thank you so much for being willing to share your story with us and to share your expertise and all the things that you're doing with advocacy and leading support groups thank you for taking the time to come and be on this episode we appreciate it and i've enjoyed this conversation and to you too rachel thank you for taking the time to be here and to share
0: thank you for listening to the research connection podcast you can visit our website for links to everything that was mentioned in the episode and for more research connection content at www.brandonu.ca bu-cares be sure to rate and subscribe so you can stay up to date with current research that impacts your community Thank
2: you.